I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're hot off the UN Glasgow Summit on Climate Change, a.k.a. the COP26 Summit. And joining us in light of that is Professor Anatole Levin, a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute, who has a book that's rather fascinating entitled Climate Change and Nation States, The Case for Nationalism. Now, I have to be honest, I prefer the alternative British subtitle, The Realist Case. I'm one of those people that gets a little bit uncomfortable with the term nationalism, but in any case, I thought that Anatole would be a great guest to have on, and rest assured, Anatole, when he uses the term nationalism, is not talking about the Richard Spencer-style white nationalism of neo-Nazis, but rather a sense of patriotic duty, civic nationalism, as you would call it in places like Europe that would allow for mass mobilization against the threat of climate change, which, in fact, Anatole argues is the greatest national security threat facing us today. He believes that we need social solidarity to bring people together across racial and class lines to fight this threat of climate chaos before catastrophe occurs. And in this conversation, I think you'll find that Anatole has something to say that will manage to anger a little bit of everyone from the political spectrum, whether we're talking about the left, right, the center, libertarians, or the power elite. Nonetheless, I think there's a value in what Anatole has to say, especially with regards to the need for the renewal of civic duty in our culture today if we are to address such dire threats as climate crisis. So with that being said, let's get to it with Professor Anatole Levin on climate change as our greatest national security threat. Hey, Parallax News listeners, before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dill as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. 
As time passes, Dill slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a wonderful institute that we're a big fan of here at the show. Anatole, you're a uh, senior fellow there. And of course, you're also the author of a book that seems very relevant right now, entitled Climate Change and the Nation State, the Case for Nationalism, or in Britain, Climate Change in the Nation State, The Realist Case. We'll get into that book in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, you come from a security studies uh, background, and I was wondering how you came at climate change from that sort of angle. Yes, I, I know it is a bit surprising. I mean, the simple answer is I was convinced by the evidence um, and the arguments. Uh, you know, I, I, I read what the experts are saying. I have no reason to doubt a scientific consensus, you know, as broad and deep as this. You know, if, if you doubt a, a consensus of this scale, well, you might as well, you know, <laughs> doubt science altogether and go off and believe in, I don't know, something else, witchcraft. Uh, and um, on the basis of the evidence, I became convinced, um, you know, as you can imagine, with some hesitation, given what I'd spent the rest of my life doing, um, that climate change, in fact, is a, a threat, um, you know, a threat to humanity, but I mean, also specifically a threat to America and Britain and other Western countries, uh, which dwarfs the geopolitical threats with which our security establishments are obsessed. Um, I suppose, though, another reason was that, you know, I've spent um, many years covering South Asia. I used to be a journalist there. I've spent a lot of time in Pakistan, wrote a book on the subject. Now, if you live there and, you know, if you travel in the in parts of the Pakistani countryside, you, you know, you, you experience uh, a society which is so much closer to the edge, uh, you know, in terms of temperatures, um, in terms of water shortages, uh, and uh, also, of course, in terms of social, um, social, ethnic, ethno-religious strains. It, and... You know, this convinced me um, that Pakistan, but of course, um, uh, a number of other very big countries as well, um, are just much closer to the edge. I mean, because they're already in trouble and climate change um, could very well have the effect of acting as the Pentagon itself has called it as a threat multiplier. In other words, it's not just the direct physical effects, but it is the way in which those physical effects play into existing strains and pressures on these societies. So that, you know, there is a, there is a tendency in the West to, to look at the direct physical effects on us 
and to say, okay, yes, they'll be unpleasant, but it will be a long time before they become fatal. And okay, maybe in, in the meantime, we'll come up with some technological mi miracle that will let us off the hook. Well, the point is uh, that they will become fatal in places like Pakistan a lot sooner. And what would the effect of that be ultimately? Like, what, what are the examples of what we mean when we say it could be a threat multiplier? What, what could come out of those threat multiplications? Well, I mean, if you take a number of parts of the world, and we've already seen this, uh, you know, in, in Darfur, uh, you see it in central Nigeria, for example, uh, fights over water. Over, over increased water shortages. And of course, this isn't uh, just absolute shortages. The point is also a combination of population growth and very poor water use. Uh, but in already ethnically divided societies in which, for example, one ethnicity uh, are the herdsmen, the pastoralists, and a different and rival ethnicity uh, are the farmers. Uh, well, I mean, that is a tension that goes back to Cain and Abel. Uh, you know, uh, 4,000, 5,000 years, basically you know, back to the origins of human agriculture. And um, that is the kind of tension. And, and you see that tension replicated in many parts of the world, including parts of Pakistan, parts of India. You know, that's the, the kind of tension that can be torn open by climate change. And then just... Um, as we saw with the um, the Syrian civil war, uh, food shortages um, have always contributed uh, to revolutions, unrest. Story of the Russian civil uh, Russian revolution, story of the French revolution. Well, obviously, I mean, climate change ha has the the capacity, you know, badly to hit food production. Um, it's been calculated, for example, that for every um, one degree the, the temperature rises, uh, the yield of certain key crops in South Asia goes down by 10%. And of course, food shortages, higher food prices, public unrest. Uh, but as we saw in Syria, this isn't just unrest, you know, against the government, which may deserve it. But in a deeply divided society, that unrest is also likely to turn into civil war. And, and also, I was going to add to that, uh, I think one thing that gets overlooked in the uh, discussions about climate change a lot of times is in countries that are underdeveloped or still developing, I, I mean, climate chaos could lead to uh, a refugee crisis that, that would affect uh, developed nations as well. Absolutely. Um, because after all, one sees already, I mean, a, a severe problem of migration. Uh, which is, of course, look, the, I, I know this This is uh, not a popular line on the left, but I just, you know, as with climate change, you know, I, I do feel a moral and intellectual obligation to look at the evidence before my eyes. And if you look at the recent political history of Europe or the United States, you know, if you look at Brexit in Britain, if you look at, you know, what's happening to the political scene in France, uh, there's just no, if you look at Donald Trump, uh, and you look at the opinion polls that there, you know, there is no doubt that migrant, you know, that m mass migration helps to drive political extremism and polarization within the West, uh, and you know could 
well, is, damn it, contributing to the serious decay of liberal democracy. Uh, now, that is with relatively limited numbers of migrants, but climate change has a capacity to vastly increase those numbers. This is not to blame the migrants at all or to engage in racism. I would do exactly the same if I were them. But after all, you know, one does have a responsibility to the defense of democracy in our own countries as well. I'm glad you brought that up because I think when people see the subtitle of, of your book here in the US, they see the case for nationalism. And I think a lot of people assume, is he talking about like ethno-nationalism? Is he promoting eco-fascism? And I don't think you're doing any of that. And I, I in fact, I would say that I, I would argue that I think you believe that ethno-nationalism is probably a threat uh, to are being able or a hindrance to our being able to deal with climate change. Well, it is indeed. I'm passionately opposed to ethnic nationalism. I mean, I have to be because I, you know, when I was a journalist, I covered so many disastrous ethnic civil wars whose you know consequences continue to this day. And you know, we are all now ethnically divided societies. Um, and of course, most of us always were actually, but in different ways. Uh, ethnic nationalism would tear us apart. And, and I mean, ethnic nationalism uh, is a contradiction in terms, as far as liberal democracy is concerned. No, the nationalism I'm talking about, you know, look, looks back to the new nationalism of um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, and uh, progressives uh, at the start of the 20th century. Um, something that was, you know, referenced and used by Barack Obama, uh, in, in a speech which directly echoed and was held in the same place as Roosevelt's new nationalism speech. So the idea is uh, to try to mobilize nationalism or patriotism, but for me, civic nationalism and patriotism are just different words for the same thing, but to mobilize this uh, behind action against climate change, but also, you know, as with um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, behind programs of social solidarity, because my, my book is is also uh, written I mean, very strongly and very explicitly in support of the, the Green New Deal idea. Uh, in other words, that, you know, both um, to gain mass public support uh, for action against climate change, but also to build uh, resilience, uh, the resilience of our political systems against its effects, you know, we need much stronger programs of social solidarity and shared sacrifices. Because, you know, I say in the book that um, Macron's fuel tax in France was completely justified in environmental and climate change terms. Uh, but to combine that with tax cuts for the rich was politically, I mean, unbelievably stupid. If you're going to ask ordinary people to make sacrifices, you have to show them, you know, A, that they will be compensated as far as possible, and B, that the, the sacrifices, you know, will be, to some reasonable extent, shared. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add to that, because I, I've thought a lot about the concerns that people have about um, ethno-nationalism. I like that you make the distinction between civic and ethno-nationalism, because um, it's weird. I've often told people that, you know, the, the reason I'm concerned about, you know, ethno-nationalist movements, in addition to just posing certain domestic terror threats, I, I think it keeps us from being able to 
mobilize in a necessary way a mass mobilization uh, against climate climate change because I think you need uh, mobilization across uh, both race and class lines. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I talk in the book about the need for, you know, what's being called a new dispensation. Uh, in other words, um, the, the kind of really huge sweeping majority um, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt won for the New Deal. Uh, and that unfortunately, um, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher won for rolling, then 40 years later, uh, for rolling, or, or 45 for rolling back the New Deal. In other words, you know, to create a new political consensus which is so strong that uh, presidents from the other party actually, get, for, for a generation or more, presidents from the other party govern in the same way. Because, you know, President Eisenhower, Republican president, governed as a New Deal Democrat in... in well, even, not, not to interrupt you, but even, I mean, I, I hate to say it because I'm not a fan of him, but even Nixon, to an extent, mm -hmm. uh, had to play by the rules set up by things like the New Deal or LBJ's Great Society. And so did Gerald Ford, or, or would have if he'd lasted. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And of course, unfortunately, I mean, since the 1980s, you've had um, two Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, um, who basically governed like moderate Republicans um, when, when it came to free market economics, deregulation, and so on. It's interesting, too, because I think regardless what people think of the term nationalism, I think nationalism as a term really uh, invokes a lot of emotions in, in the U.S., uh, you know, and in some ways, I, I completely understand that. That's why in some ways, I, I actually prefer the title The Realist Case, um, as mm. it's called in, in Britain. But uh, what's interesting to me about your book, and I think this is necessary regardless of what uh, people think of, of the term nationalism, we need a renewal of civic duty uh, in order to deal with climate change. There's no other, there's no way around that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, as I think it was the president of Austria said, um, but though in the context of, of COVID and you know, getting yourself vaccinated and being responsible, you know, citizenship has duties as well as rights. Um, I mean, that used to be generally accepted. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, by, by the way, I mean, nationalism, um, you know, people turned against the word nationalism for very understandable reasons, you know, as a result of the Second World War and Nazism. It's worth pointing out, though, that until the 1950s, uh, nationalism was used within America as a positive term, you know, including by progressives, um, because it had connotations of national solidarity, social solidarity, common effort, common sacrifice. So, um, you know, this, 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 it has not always been seen you know, as a, as a negative. Well, you also see the ways in which, I mean, ultimately, uh, as you've pointed out before, uh, you know, figures like Hillary Clinton and uh, Joe Biden uh, invoke uh, the imagery and the rhetoric at times of uh, patriotism or civic nationalism. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I, I wrote a whole book about this that made me extremely unpopular back in 2004 called An Anatomy of American Nationalism, America Right or Wrong. The, the response in those days, uh, general response was, there is no such thing as American nationalism. I haven't heard that so often since Trump was elected. Um, but my argument was uh, that there are 
two basic strands of American nationalism, you know, one of which is uh, reflected by what, alas, has now become the dominant element in the Republican Party, which is a, a chauvinist, closed nationalism. Not, well, not completely closed. It too has evolved, but certainly with a much narrower definition of what it is to be American. And, uh, you know, with uh, serious hostilities to the, the outside world. Uh, and um, a, a, a civic nationalism, uh, as you say, espoused by by. Clinton by Biden, uh, but which is still nationalism, you know, which is still uh, absolutely obsessed with, you know, specifically American values, with American leadership in the world, with America's mission. Um, you know, uh, everywhere else that would indeed be called civic nationalism. Um, you know, I, I was a student and then a journalist in, in India. Uh, you have Modi's Hindu chauvinist nationalism. Uh, but um, the, uh, the ideology of Nehru, um, which Indian liberals follow, uh, is called in India, Nehruite nationalism. It's still a, it is, still is a form of nationalism. So I want to move on to how climate change is, as you put it, the greatest national security threat. But I also, since a lot of my listeners are on the sort of left and even socialist end of the political spectrum. And I myself, I would say that I, I'm to that end of the spectrum as well. And I, you know, am supportive of internationalism as an idea. What would you say to people that have that sort of knee-jerk reaction um, to what you're calling nationalism? Uh, does it mean that we have to give up uh, internationalist pursuits is what I'm asking? No, no, not at all. I, I, you know, I, I say again and again in the book, I, I am in no way uh, against either international cooperation or international agreements, uh, or of course the international movements, um, you, you know, in support of climate change action and, you know, in, in support of many other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, on climate change, but obviously on a range of other issues as well, uh, international cooperation is extremely desirable and um, often essential, you know, as with COVID. Uh, but all I point out is that um, not just at present, but, you know, almost certainly for, you know, the foreseeable future, by which I mean generations to come, um, as far as the eye can see, um, the point of these international agreements um, and the point of these, you know, international movements is to get states to act. Uh, there are many things, and this was also demonstrated by COVID, uh, that only states can do, because only they have the powers to do it. And, you know, when it comes to climate change, um, you know, all, all the terms of the Paris Agreement and of COP26 will have to be implemented by states. You know, only they can adopt economic policies. The European Union is uh, something of an exception, but then, you know, the European Union is unique. There is no other regional body in the world with anything like, nothing resembling the powers, you know, of the European Union. Uh, in general, um, states have to um, introduce economic policies. States have to create subsidies for alternative energy. States have to create new taxes. States have to ban certain products or shut things down. 
um, states have to invest massively in research and development. Um, and in infrastructure uh, and in public transport, all the things that the Biden administration is trying to do. But you know, it's the Biden, it's the American government that is trying to do this, not the United Nations. No fault to the United Nations, but as its name suggests, it, it is a body of states. Um, and, you know, I have to say, uh, when um, researching for this book, uh, I did become a little bit exasperated with the number of, you know, books by environmentalists, which basically suggested that the only path to serious action against uh, climate change is some form of world government, or at least vastly strengthened international institutions. Well, you know, it's not just that the, the Chinese elites and the Russian elites and the Indian elites will never, ever agree to this, nor, of course, would the US Congress. Can I, can I interrupt you just briefly yeah. on that? I, I just wanted to say, I mean, what you're getting at for me is, it reminds me of a, a book um, that another realist foreign policy scholar wrote, The Great Tragedy of Power Politics by John Mersheimer. Mersheimer has always interested me because uh, Mersheimer you know, says at the beginning of that book, well, it's possible that we could have a different system to the nation state system that we have now, but you know, that, that could be hundreds of years off. We don't know. We're dealing with this sort of nation state system where different nation states are competing over resources constantly. And, and he's basically saying until that changes, you know, we're dealing with the game we've been dealt essentially. And I think that's an important point because we are sort of dealing in this world of multiple nation states, uh, regardless of what we may want in the future. Yes, well, exactly. Uh, and uh, look, climate change itself may bring about the, the, the collapse of the existing you know, nation state system. Um, but I mean, if it does, if, if that's what happens, it will be too late to avoid disaster. Uh, you, you know, if, we, if we want to actually prevent really terrible effects of, of climate change, levels of climate change, you know, we, we have to act now with what we've got. Uh, I make the same point about capitalism because, you know, you, you have people on the, on the left, like Naomi Klein, who say that, um, uh, which well, says explicitly, you, you know, to, to, to deal with climate change, we must abolish capitalism. Well, good luck on that one. You know, if we, uh, if we wait until capitalism is abolished to take action against climate change, it will be much too late. So in the book, I argue, you know, very much from a social democrat perspective, because, you know, in European terms, I'm, you know, I am an old style, lifelong, die in the wool social democrat. Um, I, I believe that, um, you, you know, we have to try to reform, I mean, radically reform capitalism, but still reform capitalism. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I talk about how the welfare state, you know, how the New Deal in America, uh, uh, as I d describe it, 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 um, it saved capitalism from itself. Capitalism left to itself has never never introduce radical reform, you know, whatever the free marketeers may say. If, if capitalism had been left to itself, we'd still have seven-year-old children working down coal mines. Um, you know, you need action by the state and by determined, you know, concerned minorities uh, to bring about change. But because, you know, without that, you know, not just Russia, uh, but most of Europe, even perhaps the United States, would have collapsed into revolution and civil war. Um, and 
you know, without that today, uh, we will, you know, we will not be able to limit climate change. If you could, and I hope this isn't too off topic, I was curious, you know, I've had people like Stephen Walt on the show in the past. And one question I always like to ask people like yourself or Stephen is to give listeners an idea of what the realist school of foreign policy is, because, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions or misunderstandings about it, or they'll say, oh, isn't that like Henry Kissinger's thing, which, you know, Stephen Walt would say, well, I don't, I'm not sure that I categorize myself as a Kissinger kind of guy. So what do we mean when we say the realist school of foreign policy? Well, the realist school of, of foreign policy has has many, many sub schools in it. You know, I mean, obviously, Kissinger would represent a particularly harsh and cynical form of realism. What I think all the schools have in, in common uh, is a belief in the centrality of the state, um, not necessarily a nation state. You know, there the can be other forms of state, but certainly the state um, as the uh, central actor in international affairs. And the greatest of all realist thinkers, Hans Morgenthau, uh, described the fundamental force in international affairs as interest, by which he meant state interest, defined in terms of power. In other words, what a state defines as, it in, as its interests and what capacity it has to pursue those interests. The other thing that um, all realists have in common uh, is that they regard the international system uh, as basically anarchical, uh, which means that there isn't, in fact, an overarching governmental or legal authority. But, I mean, here it's very important to point out that anarchical does not necessarily mean the same thing as chaotic. Uh, so um, you have realists, and I think Stephen would count himself as that, as I do, uh, who also believe in the possibility uh, of um, states agreeing on conventions, on limits, on certain rules, uh, and of course cooperating you know, in, in pursuit of, of common human aims. But the point being, though, that the states agree, they have to agree, nobody can force them to, 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 to do this. I mean, the other um, thing to say is that, you know, there is this um, uh, impression, as you say, of, of realism as, as very, you know, cynical and harsh philosophy. But, you know, so, some of the greatest realist thinkers, you know, in America, Reinhold Niebuhr, as a practitioner, George Kennan, um, have also had a very, very deep concern uh, for ethics in public life and in state behavior. Uh, in other words, um, they, uh, you know, they, they believe that states will, should pursue and defend their own interests, uh, but that the pursuit of those interests should also be shaped by ethical considerations. Now, I, I know we've uh, sort of gotten um, to talking about your criticisms of uh, the, the left when it comes to dealing with this climate change issue, but you're, you're also not, you, you don't go easy on anyone. You do not go easy <laughs> on the elites, the centrists, the, and, and of course, uh, conservatives. I just saw today that a uh, conservative commentator, and I, you know, there's probably many of them doing this right now, uh, was tweeting about... Uh, oh, you know, the, the, there's people saying that we need to uh, get ready for climate change and it's a defense issue uh, when we really should be worrying about China. And I know you have a lot to say about that. And I, I wanted you to talk about that because 
it's interesting to me. I've said to conservatives, if you truly are a conservative, I think that in the truest sense of the word, conservatism is about uh, maintaining uh, or conserving the society and its stability. And as such, I think if you're a conservative, you actually should be really worried about climate change as a national security issue. Well, yes. I mean, uh, conserving the, the society, conserving the national landscape, and of course, I mean, conserving the nation itself uh, into the future. Um, because, you know, the famous um, statement by Burke, uh, the you know, classic statement of conservative patriotism, um, that society is a contract uh, between the living, the dead, and those yet to be born. I mean, that in, is very close to, you know, this famous um, environmentalist saying that we've only borrowed the world from our grandchildren. It, it does, or it should, if you're a true conservative, you know, create a real concern for what is going to happen to your country uh, a century from now. Real quick, I just wanted to add to that. I think there's also a misconception. When people use the, cons the word conservatism in the US, I think they mean uh, you know, a kind of political movement that is against any form of change. And to me, I, I think that conservatism, if we actually took it as a serious intellectual tradition, I think conservatism would accept reform when it's necessary to keeping the stability of the nation. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's the, that is the, the English conservative tradition. Um, uh, and uh, it must be said that, you know, throughout Europe, um, the, the great majority of conservatives now do fully accept climate change. I mean, they differ, obviously, from the left on what to do about it. But you do not find this, this blind, culturally determined rejection uh, of the existence of climate change and of any climate change action that you find in America, unfortunately, this is a, a very specifically American thing. And as I say, you know, driven above all by political culture and cultural hatreds, I mean, not by uh, assessment uh, of, of, of the evidence. In, in a lot of ways, I think it's also driven by, um, I think conservatism in America has taken on a very particular meaning since Reagan. That's almost in, in a lot of ways, uh, I would say, kind of libertarian in a, in a great deal of ways. Well, yes, because actually, I mean, so many uh, American conservatives are not conservatives in uh, a, a traditional sense. They are, in fact, ultra-free market liberals, which was true of Margaret Thatcher as well, by the way. Um, others are, or, and of course, they can combine that with deep cultural conservatism uh, sometimes, but... Um, it's you know it it does it does create a you, you know this combination of you know ideological fanaticism with you know cultural what would you call it dogmatism um, and and a, and I would say a hollowing out of the state uh, that really can hurt our ability to deal with a lot of these issues. Well, that, yes, and I mean that is um, that that is also uh, new, uh, or, or at least new newish in many ways for um, American conservatism. I mean, certainly coming out of the the New Deal and the Second World War, um, for almost two generations, it was accepted by. The, I mean, of course, there was always a, a crazed fringe. Um, 
but uh, the Republican mainstream absolutely accepted the key role of the state in uh, developing the economy, in developing technology, in responsibility for infrastructure and transport. Uh, you know, all of these things were not controversial. Um, and America was a very, very much, you know, more successful country then. Now, with what I mentioned earlier, this whole issue of, uh, oh, what do you mean we should be putting our money into uh, our tax dollars into fighting climate change? Uh, the, the real issue is China. You've actually written directly about this. So maybe you could unpack why that view is um, wrong in its priorities. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of national security has become uh, captured by what has been called the blob in Washington or the military industrial complex or the establishment or, or call it what you will. Uh, and to a very great extent um, has become divorced from what ought to be its central concern, which is, after all, the defense of the lives and the well-being of American citizens. You know, uh, uh, America, according to its own constitution and political theory, is a body of people before it is a state. You know, in, in other words, the, you know, the American people are America. Well, now, you know, China does undoubtedly threaten uh, uh, American hegemony, or at least unilateral American hegemony in East Asia. It's not even clear how much China actually threatens that elsewhere in the world. Um, China so far has been very cautious about getting involved in the Middle East. All the problems, I mean, not all the problems, but so many problems of America in the Middle East over the past 20 years are entirely the work of America itself, of American policy. And perhaps above all, I mean, as of today, China is not killing Americans. China is not destroying swathes of American agriculture. China is not burning down American forests, you know, or flooding uh, American cities. Climate change is. And climate change, unchecked, has the capacity to do things which China has no intention of doing, not even any desire to do. Uh, if only because, you know, China itself would suffer economically so badly, you know, to generate waves of migration uh, that will radically undermine uh, American democracy at home. I mean, remember that any manipulation uh, that Russia and China have been able to engage in has only been possible because America is already a deeply polarized, you know, and divided society. And of course, in the longer run, um, if we fail adequately to limit climate change and it escapes from human control altogether. Now, it, it would be totally uh, wrong uh, to, to say this is certain or even probable or to put any kind of figure on it. But, you know, Every expert says that there is a non-negligible possibility that you know, if we go above two degrees, we'll lose control of this process altogether um, as a result of the Arctic ice sheets melting, the permafrost melting and releasing huge amounts of methane, the Amazon forest dying, um, and that you know, two degrees will become three degrees, will become four degrees. Now, if that happens over a short space of time, and it appears that, it, that, that that level of climate change has happened, very quickly at certain moments in the past, then uh, 
you know, America will not survive as a state and organized society, nor, nor will anywhere else. You know, that is not something that China can do to the United States. Climate so, change can. What was that? Climate change can. So that leads me into another issue. You know, I'm very sympathetic um, to things like the climate justice movement, which, uh, you know, people within that sort of movement have been saying, you know, even climate change itself won't affect everyone equally, and that the poorest nations uh, will be the most impacted by it. And I think there's truth to that. But I also think that a lot of people then assume that it's not going to hit a country like the US. Uh, why would you say that's wrong? Yes, um, climate change is hitting the United States already uh, directly. I mean, not too badly yet, but you know, all the predictions are it will get much worse. Um, and uh, as I say, I mean, the effects of climate change on Central America have the capacity greatly to increase migration to the United States. And you know, you can see from the present situation on the Mexican border, you, you know, the, look at what that is doing to the popularity of the Biden administration. Of course, there are many other issues as well, but you, know, you cannot deny that this is having a bad effect on the progressive cause in, in America. But are there, are there other, other than the migration issue, what are the other impacts it could have on the US? Well, it depends on how bad it gets. Um, you, you know, heat waves uh, are already you know, killing hundreds of people. That can get much, much worse. Uh, resulting forest fires, you know, have already devastated communities. Uh, that can get vastly worse. And by the way, forest fires also have a, a direct effect on public health. Um, and of course, uh, a combination of sea level rise and intensified storms and storm surges uh, have the capacity to uh, flood you know, at fairly regular intervals, um, extremely important American cities, New York, Miami, New Orleans. And remember, you know, people sort of say, oh, well, you know, uh, nobody's saying that it will rise by whatever it is, three meters by the end of the century, um, and we can live with one meter. Well, the point is, of course, that uh, it's it's a combination of that with storms and storm surges. You, you know, the sea doesn't have to rise by three meters uh, to cause a series of devastating storms that will do colossal economic and social and human damage uh, to large parts of the American coastline. So all of these things are, you know, direct effects on, on the United States, which are totally predictable and have been predicted again and again and again with solid evidence uh, if we do not adequately limit climate change. Now, I mentioned earlier, and this is probably a good segue into uh, COP26, the, the United Nations Summit on Climate Change in Glasgow recently. But, you know, I mentioned that you've also been critical of what C. Wright Mills, I, I believe, would call the power elite. Uh, or the sort of elites in our society, where have they gone wrong with addressing climate change or just more generally even, I guess? Well, I make, I hope this isn't too pessimistic, you know, a comparison of our elites today, um, especially our security elites with the, um, the Confucian elites of Imperial China, who after all were a fantastically successful um, ruling elite 
through a succession of different dynasties and states, but they kept coming back and you know reconstituting this, the state you know along similar lines uh, for more than 2,500 years. Then in the mid 19th century, they ran into something completely new, which was the Western Industrial Capitalist Revolution, which was producing challenges that they were simply totally you know, unadapted to meet. Uh, and their very success over such a long period uh, you know, meant that it was even more difficult for them to change. Well, you know, the United States and the United States establishment, you know, were fantastically successful, not for 2,500 years, but for, you know, certainly 200 or so. And I fear that the, the result is that, you know, we're stuck with, um, if you like, residual elites, uh, especially in the security field. Look, they, their fathers, their grandfathers have all you know, been concerned with great power threats, with, you know, planning for, well, conducting war with Nazi Germany and Japan, with planning for war with the Soviet Union, with, you know, seeing other great powers as, you know, the great challenge to the United States. And of course, enormous, enormous industrial, financial, military, but also academic, you know, institutions um, and think tanks uh, are, as Eisenhower, you know, warned, you know, absolutely, totally invested in the perception of a certain kind of threat. Uh, and, of course, I mean, it's very, very difficult for them to, to change. I mean, in the old Chinese phrase, um, you, you know, really taking climate change seriously threatens their rice bowl. You know, you'd have an awful lot of security analysts who would have to either change or retire. In other words, and I've used this term myself before, but I think the problem we face with the sort of national security state is that we have a national security apparatus that is increasingly showing atrophied and I would say fossilizing forms of thinking about things. We're not in the 20th century anymore. Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, as history shows, um, elites that fail to adapt to radically new circumstances are destroyed um, eventually. Um, and uh, unfortunately, very often, um, they take their countries with them. Uh, or certainly they take their political systems with them. Look at Russia, look at France, look at Iran, look at so many examples. Yes, I think that's exactly what we're facing. We, we have, um, you know, we have elites which were constructed to face and, you know, in certain respects did face very successfully certain kinds of challenge. Uh, and they are now in a new world with new challenges uh, to which they are unable, but also deeply, deeply unwilling to adapt. Now, that leads us into uh, COP26, and, and we'll start wrapping up after that. But uh, with COP26, what are your main takeaways from it? I, it was interesting. I noticed a lot of people um, are saying, well, you know, uh, Xi in China did not go or, or uh, Putin uh, was not involved. And there's been a lot of focus on that. But what are the things you've been focused on with um, COP26? 
Well, yes. I mean, it was a great pity that she and Putin didn't turn up. But then, of course, Biden turned up pretty much empty handed um, because of, you know, the um, blocking by the U.S. Senate, including, of course, notoriously some members of his own party. Also, Um, I don't think Modi showed up from India either. uh, No, he did show up, but very briefly and with nothing new to offer. And of course, India and China together uh, were... um, chiefly responsible for blocking a much stronger commitment um, to to get rid of coal. You know, this has now become an aspiration. Uh, And indeed, there have been um, statements from the Indian government uh, which have made it quite explicit that India has no intention, certainly thinks it has no capacity uh, to abolish coal in, you know, anything like the timeframe envisaged by the you know, by the Paris Agreement. Um, I mean, what this does illustrate, you know, the United States is is emphasizing China. I mean, fairly given that China is by far the biggest, you know, emitter of carbon gases, uh, but very much playing down India's role because, of course, India is a, a U.S. partner. But in fact, um, you know, this this is an issue which completely cuts across geopolitics. Um, and uh, and it also, by the way, cuts across ideological systems. I mean, on a per capita basis, not an absolute basis, but a per capita basis, you know, the worst offenders in the world outside the, um, the oil states of the Gulf uh, are three Anglo-Saxon democracies. So are there any other big takeaways uh, that we should uh, really be examining now with the Glasgow summit? Well, I think, I mean, Glasgow demonstrates that um, uh, the hope of radical reductions in, uh, in I mean, a, a really quick and radical moves away from uh, carbon fuels based on existing technologies are probably largely doomed. Um, I mean, there there are moves, but nothing that came out of Glasgow suggests that those will be quick or radical enough. So, I mean, obviously, these moves must continue. But I I would say, and others have also written this, uh, that um, uh, the the lesson as well uh, is that states need to pour money uh, into research and development into new technologies and uh, across you know the the widest range there is no area that we can afford to neglect so obviously that means uh, you, you know got to look intensively into as people are but it's got to be strengthened uh, storage um, for electricity that will you know really allow us to, to ramp up um, alternative energy because you know as you know the problem with solar and wind power is that at the moment it can't be stored on anything like an adequate basis you know when the wind is not blowing um, but I do think we've we've also got to really intensively research new forms of nuclear energy we just can't afford to do without that given present situation um, looking into fusion energy uh, and um, we've got to really you know look into carbon capture. Um, and sequestration. Now, none of these is any kind of miracle, and I'm certainly not, you know, echoing Republicans who say, oh, you know, don't worry, technologically something will come along. But I do think we've got to, um, we, we've, you know, the state 
all states need need to prioritize this kind of research and development in the way that unfortunately at present and even under Biden's plans the US continues to prioritize military research and development you know g- given the scale of the threat it is grotesque that even Biden is planning to spend four times you know on the development of new me- uh, weapon systems um in future, uh, four times the figure that he wants to spend, though he may not be allowed to, uh, on research and development, you know, into action against climate change, um, you know, quite apart. That's a different subject, but the, the almost inconceivable levels of waste and incompetence with which um, American weapon systems are developed. Oh, and British, by the way. You know, it, it's interesting to me because I, so I think in Britain there's at least a tradition of you know, I, I would say people people have called them a uh, red Tories or Tories that do not like Margaret Thatcher and uh, you know basically accept that you know society is a thing. Um, not everything is about the individual. I think in America, the, the thing that worries me is we're so in the grip of uh, a culture that puts individualism seemingly above everything else. I wonder how we can get a renewal of civic duty within the culture. Uh, do you have any ideas about the ways in which civic duty could be renewed within the United States, at least, in order to combat climate change? Well, that is why I advocate, you know, the development of a new nationalism or, you know, civic nationalism, patriotism, uh, you know, the cultivation of a, of a sense of national solidarity, of national oneness in the pursuit of key national goals. But I agree. I mean, there is the problem of of radical individualism. And of course, there is also the problem of, you know, increasingly embittered cultural, political divisions. Um, And, uh, you you know, some of which, in my view, are, are being, you know, very foolishly stoked on the left, as well as being deliberately whipped up, you know, on the right. Um, I mean, it is no accident that Tucker Carlson uh, and Sean Hannity and others love woke culture so much. It's, you know, it is such a wonderful argument for them, you know, to use to their base. Um, So I I do hope uh, that Americans and and Brits too, but, you you know, could could learn again um, the need uh, to work together Uh, for the good of some vision of America as a united country uh, in which, um, you know, all Americans ultimately, you know, irrespective of class or gender or anything else or colour, do share one common fate. Because, you know, if climate change really gets out of hand, I say in the book that the the only Americans um, who will be able to escape that are people who I call the foams, the friends of Elon Musk. And even they may not have as nice a time on Mars as he seems to believe. So before closing out here, I just wanted to get to the key flashpoints in your latest Quincy brief, Quincy brief number 18, climate change, the greatest national security threat to the United States. Uh, What are the key flashpoints that you think uh, people should be aware of? Um, I've read the executive summary, and it sounds like uh, a lot of it has to do with finding ways to keep the tensions between the US and China down while we take uh, international action against climate change. And uh, also, 
you know, trying to limit climate change and mitigating its effects uh, with spending efforts that would have to take pre precedence over military spending. Uh, could you comment to those two things? And then if there's any other flashpoints from that report that you think people should be aware of? Yes. I mean, look, geopolitical rivalry with with China, the Biden administration thinks that th this is a way of, you know, uniting Americans, defusing Republican opposition and getting, you know, his um, infrastructure and Green New Deal package through. That is simply not working. Meanwhile, um, the military needs of confrontation with China and the sheer, you know, distraction of US attention uh, is having a terrible effect on the struggle against climate change. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, and it's not just China, but much more absurdly, it's Russia. Um, there has been you know, more and more talk in, um, in, in recent days, and I fear that this time it may be better based than scares in the past, um, about a new war in Ukraine, into which conceivably the United States could be drawn. I mean, this, this, this war is about worthless... Um, coal mining districts of eastern Ukraine that, you know, have never been of the slightest interest to the United States. And yet if this happens, it will wreck action, serious action against climate change for years to come. I mean, this is a, a, just an absolutely manifest case uh, of wrong priorities. I mean, between, beyond that, I mean, <clears throat> what I really emphasize uh, is the need for the United States, you know, to pay less attention to very distant parts of the world and to pay much more attention to its own backyard in Central America. It, it is astonishing the degree to which you know, America's own neighbors have been neglected by the United States uh, in recent decades. You know, except when there seemed to be a communist threat, when the response was to back you know, military dictatorships to crush it. Um, and of course, a militarized version of the, the war on drugs. You know, Central America is so low in America's priorities uh, for international development aid, for example. Uh, and so you need to concentrate on Central America, concentrate aid, uh, but of course shaped above all by the need to build resilience against the effects of, of climate change. Um, and because, of course, Central America does generate a, a series of you know, threats and challenges which directly affect the United States in a way that China and Russia simply do not. So, I mean, those are the um, the main lessons I, I try to put across in the in the policy brief. So in closing here, um, since I mentioned I do have a lot of listeners that lean towards the left end of the political spectrum and are concerned about issues related to things like gender, you know, and I, I mean, so, for example, I, I have uh, friends and, and people I know in the city here in Pittsburgh that are, you know, trans. And, you know, I, I worry about their well-being and whatnot. And I, I think conservatives uh, sometimes feel very strongly about that trans issue in the opposite direction. Um, is there a way that the left can pursue what you're talking about without giving up its values or compromising itself on the, the cultural issues it cares about? I, I hope you see where I'm, I'm going with that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you know, the point is to, to concentrate on what is essential here, which is the, the, the basic human and civic rights of people, of all Americans and all Brits, you know, irrespective of race, gender, sexual 
you know, orientation. Uh, but, um, you know, focus on the common rights of everybody as citizens. Uh, because what worries me is, um, you know, for example, uh, a line in a, 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 an, an article in The Nation a few months ago, uh, which declared that, um, you know, the rights of black transgender people should be the key element of any progressive agenda. Well, you know, one also has to win elections and black transgender people who deserve, you know, exactly the same rights and possibilities as everybody else. Uh, but um, they are, you know, something like 1% of 1% of the American population as a whole. You don't win elections that way. And, you know, if you want to pursue a progressive agenda in America or any other democracy, you've got to win elections. If the Republicans you know, win back um, Congress in 2022 and then win the presidency, and especially if Donald Trump comes back in 2024, there goes the progressive agenda for the next you know, presidential term. You, you know, there, there are... You know, there are ideals, but there is also a duty, a duty, if you believe in those ideals, uh, to support practical political measures and strategies which will actually allow those measures to be implemented. That's what I'd say. And just because I forgot to mention it earlier, uh, what are your hopes with regards to the Green New Deal? I've heard you say that you're more on the Warren sort of side of the Elizabeth Warren sort of side of that than the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez side of that. Could you unpack that a little bit uh, just in closing here? Yeah, well, uh, um, in the problem that uh, I, I sub greatly supported Cortez and, and Marquis' Green New Deal resolution in principle, but the problem was that there was loaded onto it uh, a lot of language which um, was, you know, might have been designed to tell the white working classes that this was not for them, um, you know, that they were excluded, uh, that they needn't, you know, apply. Um, now, in the first place, that is damned bad politics. Um, and, you know, after all, Biden did not win by anything like the majority uh, that um, he should have faced with an opponent like Trump who after all had himself done nothing in practical terms for his working class base. Uh, and of course, the Democrats won nothing like the majority uh, in, in the Senate that they needed to get their you know, agenda through. Uh, so um, the, the other point I would make is, uh, um, A, I, I regard gender as totally irrelevant to, to, to climate change. You know, uh, everybody's gonna drown together. Now, as far as, um, uh, racial minorities are concerned, uh, insofar as they are, and particularly African Americans, uh, much poorer on average um, than on average than whites. You know, of course, <laughs> this still leaves an awful lot of very poor whites. Um, if, as part of the Green New Deal, you have really serious new anti-poverty programs, which are also genuinely colorblind, then these programs will automatically disproportionately uh, benefit 
African-Americans because African-Americans are disproportionately poor. Now, I fully understand that in the past you've had ostensibly colorblind programs, you know, which in fact have discriminated against African-Americans. So there have to be safeguards against that. But my point is that to give practical help to poor African uh, American communities, it isn't actually necessary to talk about race all the time in ways which unfortunately may cost you victory in elections and once again make it impossible for you to implement anything. Um, you know, once again, uh, you, you know, you've got to win. You've got to win. And as many people have said, I, I do have a, a, a concern about parts of the cultural left, and also, if I may say, the academic left, having spent seven years working for an American university, which is that I'm not convinced that many of them are really interested in winning or even perhaps of implementing their programs. They are terribly interested uh, in appearing to be right. Um, right in their own eyes. Um, but what they need to be is right in the eyes of a majority of a large majority of American voters. And do you think that with the next election in the US, like you, you mentioned, you know, Trump could come back or there could be a successor to Trump. I, I think a big concern for me is, I mean, we saw under the Trump administration, a real hollowing out of regulations with uh, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, do you think that may be one of the biggest threats we face uh, going forward with a future administration? It, it is indeed. I mean, if God forbid Trump or anyone in Trump's image comes, came, comes back in, in 2024, you know, everything will stop and go backwards. You know, they will, as things stand at present, do everything in their power to damage the American struggle against climate change. Incidentally, by the way, um, this will also, uh, once again, hand leadership, international leadership of this issue to the Chinese. Um, and, you know, wh whether helping China towards, you know, global leadership is or should be part of the agenda of the Republican Party is something that I would, I would really urge my Republican friends to think about. Well, I want to thank you, Anatole Levin, for coming on Parallax Views. I, I, I'm hoping there was something in this conversation to upset every political spectrum uh, out there. But, uh, you know, I really appreciate the work you're doing at Quincy. And I honestly think uh, Climate Change in the Nation State is a very invaluable book. And it really get, got me thinking about a lot of different things. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's very kind. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Anatole Levin, Senior Fellow at the Quincy Institute. You know, I'm pretty sure that my listeners, which encompasses a pretty broad segment of the politically aware, had, you know, an issue or two to take at least with some of the things Anatole said I'm not even saying that I agree with all of Anatole's points, but I think that, again, his premise that we really need to prioritize climate change as the greatest national security threat and that we need a renewal of civic duty in order to fight this threat is very, very invaluable. And I think that you really should 
give a read to his Quincy briefing report on climate change as the greatest national security threat that should be linked to in the description of this episode. As always, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, and at the $5 tier and above, you get exclusive bonus content such as video versions of previous Parallax Views programs. And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit, which leads us to our producer's credits to... Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then consider supporting me at the Parallax Views Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.